0: In the middle of the sprawl and gridlock of Los Angeles sits what looks like an idyllic European town centre. A fountain dances in the main square, people sit in cafes to watch the joggers and dog walkers go by, and an old-timey trolley carries visitors down the boulevard. The street and its inhabitants are immaculate, happy, healthy, wealthy and clean. This is the Grove shopping mall, half a million square feet of prime retail space, a love letter to Californian commercial prosperity. Joan Didion, who dreamed of opening a shopping mall herself, once described such places as toy garden cities in which no one lives, but everyone consumes. Profound equalizers, the perfect fusion of the profit motive and the egalitarian ideal. This particular Disneyland for grown-ups is the creation of developer Rick Caruso, He said that when making The Grove, he wanted to transport people to a better place and time. Now he wants to do that for the whole city. The billionaire former Republican just won a plurality of the vote in the race to become LA's new mayor. I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is California revealing the limits of progressive politics? The Golden State, it's often said, is where the future happens first. Its cities have long been bastions of the liberal left. But in this week's primaries, voters in both L.A. and San Francisco expressed their unhappiness with progressive local governments. Fed up with homelessness and crime, L.A. is considering electing a law and order property developer as its next mayor and threatening to follow San Francisco's example and recall its progressive prosecutor who had promised to reimagine public safety. Is California sending a message from the future for Democrats? With me to discuss what's going on in California and nationally in the Democratic Party are Erin Braun, who covers California for The Economist, and Charlotte Howard, our New York Bureau Chief. Charlotte, what's going on in New York?
1: All's well in New York. We had the first hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack last night on Thursday evening. It was interesting. You had testimony from many people, including Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump, saying that the former president's claims of a stolen election were incorrect. But there's this tension on the Republican side. Republicans say, you know, we shouldn't dwell on this also by the way the election was stolen. And you can't really have it both ways. And then on the Democratic side, there's a real reason to do this, which is that after really big events in American history, Pearl Harbor, the assassination of JFK, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, you have a hearing to understand what happened And this is an event of that scale, Democrats would argue, and I think they're right. But at the same time, Americans, ordinary Americans, aren't that concerned about this. They're thinking about inflation and gas prices, right? So there's a a degree to which the Republicans who say this isn't a good idea, they're right, politically, probably, but nevertheless, it is important to do.
0: Yeah, I found parts of the hearing really powerful. It's really striking to me how quickly America seems to have moved on from what happened, and I think not out of some sense that, oh, this won't happen again, but the country seems to have moved on, you know, partly out of hoping that there won't be a repeat, but also an acknowledgement that there seems to be not much that can be done politically to prevent, you know, what may be a, a repeat. I think the committee's doing great work examining what happened in real detail, but Charlotte, you're right, the way it just feels like old news is, is pretty disheartening, given the importance of, of what's at stake here. When there have been a few more televised hearings, we'll be talking about the January 6th committee in the checks and balance in a couple of weeks time. Okay, let's leave that here for now. But if you want to hear more about what happened at the first televised hearing, then please go and listen to Intelligence, our daily podcast, where you can hear John Fasman and James Astill, our Lexington columnist, talking about it. This week, we're going to be talking about a different big political story, at California. And all the way from the West Coast, now sitting opposite me in the studio, is Erin. Erin, Aaron, how's it going?
2: Hi, John. It's very nice to be sitting across from you in London rather than cross-legged in my bedroom in Denver. But it's great busy week in California politics. Lots to talk about from local races to state races to the governor's race, even.
0: So, Erin, this is your special subject. Why don't you kick things off? Why are we focusing on California this week?
2: I think the run-up to the primaries this week and then the results are really telling when you're considering the big issues that California is facing and perhaps what some of the Democrats will face with the midterm elections this November. For California, kind of the the two big races that we'll be talking about today which is the LA's mayor race and the recall of the district attorney in San Francisco have turned on these questions of crime and homelessness that I think are really central to the big problems California is grappling with today.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we'll also be dissecting the results from San Francisco where the city's famously progressive DA Chesa Boudin has been recalled by cross voters. But Erin, let's start in LA.
2: Sure. Um, I was there a couple weeks ago. I went to see Eric Garcetti, who is the current mayor at City Hall, and he's been in office for about a decade now, which is one of the reasons why the mayor's race is so important this year. They're running to replace somebody you know who's been around for so long. And I asked Garcetti about his tenure and the problems that LA is facing now and kind of what he hopes for the city in the future. This has
3: been a place that feels less free than it used to. This was kind of this expanse, go west, young man, you know, figure out what you want to be, how you want to reinvent your life. Black Americans fleeing the Jim Crow South, Latinos who have been here and have been Native here for, you know, since there's been people, but who came North as well for opportunity. And I think we have to help make ourselves freer again because we feel a little bit more constricted.
2: What do you mean by that? Or how do you do that when... You know, all of those people might want to come to Los Angeles, but they can't afford to.
3: That's exactly the freedom that either is keeping people from here or those of us that are here don't have to be homeless to feel. I mean, the freedom of choice of staying for uh, a child of Los Angeles who's like, sorry, mom, dad, I literally can't afford it. And that's why when people ask me what are the top three issues, I always snidely answer, housing, housing, and housing. (laughs) Because I think everything, it's the prism through which we refract pollution, our long commute, missed economic opportunity, Fleeing businesses, like housing really is that thing. And we were, unfortunately, everybody wanted to be and stay here for a long time. That's a great problem to have for a city. We didn't vacate like a Detroit or Pittsburgh or something, but we didn't build infrastructure to accommodate it. Now we're paying the price.
2: Why do you think housing and homelessness specifically have been so hard to tackle here?
3: Uh, They're intertwined. I mean, homelessness is, of course, about housing and not having housing, but homelessness also brings in trauma in a way that not all housing policy does because we have no safety net in this country. It really is about America's failure there. On the housing front, yeah, it's a pretty simple story. It's about NIMBYism for 40 years, that we uh, had a lot of people who were kind of the protectors of neighborhoods who were like, we're not gonna change zoning. It has to stay single family homes. It's what made LA beautiful, but it conspired to really a 40, 50 year drought of building enough housing. So we've tripled the pace of housing and tripled the number of affordable housing units. But still, we probably have to double that again. But I think it's fundamentally shifted.
2: I was looking at some polling recently about how many Angelinos think the city is headed in the right direction. And it has dropped a lot since even just 2017. Why do you think that is?
3: Look, everybody's scarred from a pandemic. I think mental health everywhere and optimism everywhere is just down. As a result of the pandemic too, there were certain things we couldn't do. We couldn't uh, address uh, homelessness. We had to decompress shelters. We had to, you know, a lot of people were de-institutionalized. A lot of workers weren't available to do things like painting out graffiti. Like, So I think the city just feels harder and rents continue to go up. There's still more demand. If you're trying to buy a home, forget about it. You know, there's been a small uptick in in crime it's still historically low but we saw some violent crimes go up and I think people are talking a lot about it so there's a feeling of that I just think it is the reality of that sprawl hit the wall here and we have two choices we can either be depressed about that or we can do something about it but it's not just for City Hall to solve we have to figure this out collectively and in this complicated region that we chopped up and you know we're like a if we were a salad on the menu LA and Southern California would definitely be a chopped salad (laughs) we would not be you know a coherent uh a uh, whole and that makes governance really challenging sometimes.
2: Why do you say that?
3: So LA City, it, it, LA it, and I, when I say LA City, there's the formal City of Los Angeles, 4 million people. But the city of LA, the metropolitan area continuous city by any other definition without farmland in between is 19 million people cut into five different counties. The largest county is LA County, that's 10 million of the 19. And that's chopped up into 88 separate cities self-governing let alone our school districts, water districts. So I think if you were to start, if you knew a city was going to be built of 19 million people, you'd probably make it coterminous in one single uh, entity. Here we've got, you know, a few hundred.
2: The Republican Party seems to love to use California as a punching bag. You know, it's too expensive. Homelessness is out of control. Businesses are leaving. Do they have a point? And if not, you know how do you successfully counter those attacks?
3: You know, the California dream is pretty unique. And it was predicated on, I think, three or four things. You know, our good weather um, and geography. But the three main things were good jobs, good schools, cheap housing. The good jobs are here. We're never going to be the cheapest because real estate will never be the cheapest even as we make it cheaper. We have certain values where, yes, we do have environmental protections, et cetera. But where I believe the criticisms are spot on is it's important for Democrats and Californians of whatever stripe to accept that many of our well-intentioned initiatives need to be reviewed every so often to see what is the collective impact of them. And one last thing, quit the circular firing squad. Our enemy is in other Democrats or folks on the left. And that goes across the board from, from centrists to progressives we are really good at hating on each other while our true enemies kind uh, of steal the, the election.
0: Erin, I thought that was really interesting. I really enjoyed the civics lesson from the mayor there about how governance actually works in LA and the wider area. Before we go any further, can we just do a fact check on some things that people have probably been reading and hearing about California over the past few days um, since the Boudin recall result came through? How bad is homelessness? How bad is crime? And I suppose the other thing that Mayor Garcetti picked up on, you know, the cost of housing. uh, How bad is that? And are these things getting worse, getting better? You know, what direction are the trends?
2: He's right to say that housing, housing, housing is the problem when it comes to California. You know, rents have spiraled out of control. I think the last time I checked, the median home price in the state was something like $800,000 which most people just cannot afford. Homelessness also, 66,000 people or a little bit more are homeless in LA County. That's more than anywhere else in the country. Um, There's also a, a large homeless population in San Francisco. Crime is where things get a little bit complicated. In Los Angeles, at least, the concern is mainly about rising violent crime and rising homicides. And They are much higher than they have been in recent years, but still far below the peak that they were at in the 1990s, which to many people is not really a consolation because the peak in the 1990s was very high. Um, In San Francisco, violent crime is relatively low, but people are really concerned about high levels of property crime, burglaries, shoplifting.
1: Broadly, I think there is an interesting question about actual data versus perception. So as you say, it's not that... Much of a consolation to say that crime in New York, as an example, is much improved compared with the early 1990s. I mean, that was a pretty bad period for the city. But I think it is interesting to think about the political response to it. The 1990s in New York brought Rudy Giuliani into power and brought broken windows policing on a big scale in New York and therefore in other cities across the country. And so With the recall of Boudin, I wonder whether this is something that will continue to play out across many other progressive cities going forward. Um, On the perception question, though, you know, in New York, the subway is such a big issue, right, that there's been an uptick in crime. A lot of the homeless complaints really have to do with people camping out in subways. The subway is just as a key emotional and political question is important for New Yorkers in particular, because it's such a important part of the city's economy. And in L.A. and and San Francisco, it's something a bit different. But basically, you see the same anxieties playing out, which are, you know, real questions about quality of life, real questions about whether the city has a problem that is evident visually, and you see voters wanting to hold local leaders to account.
0: I think you make a really good point about those symbolic things in cities that people notice and look at as the barometer of what direction the city is heading in. I think it's important to just underline Eric Garcetti there and Aaron, you were talking about homelessness in Los Angeles and in California broadly. We have to distinguish between unsheltered homelessness. So those are people um, often living in tents on the sidewalk and people who are homeless, you know, bouncing between temporary accommodation. It's the unsheltered homelessness that I think is particularly visible in California, and unlike New York, you know, there's a real fault line among liberals about whether the kinds of sweeps of homeless encampments are OK or not, right? I mean, lots of advocates for homeless in California would say, well, it's cruel to you know, take away somebody's tent and stop them from living on the sidewalk. Lots of other also liberal people would say, actually, it's cruel to let people live on the sidewalk and, and shoot up drugs in, in public, etc., Erin, do you think that as a result of these elections, those attitudes to tolerating very large homeless encampments in cities in California are going to change?
2: Part of that has to do with the whether or not sweeps are allowed, basically. There's a court case that prohibits these sweeps from being made unless officials can offer the people living in them shelter beds. And so that's a big problem that California is reckoning with. But I do think that you're right to distinguish between sheltered and unsheltered homelessness, especially when we're talking about perception. In LA, if you walk down the street, you're probably going to pass a homeless encampment. And I think when we're trying to puzzle out why it is that Californians feel like their quality of life is deteriorating, even though these crime stats are so hard to disentangle, a lot of that has to do with how visible these problems have become.
0: Aaron, one other thing listening to Mayor Garcetti made me curious. I mean, there you have the mayor of the largest city in the state, somebody who's been in office for a really long time, denouncing nimbyism, right? That sounds great if you're like The Economist and think that more houses should be built in California because that would make housing cheaper. The state's governor, Gavin Newsom, also has a really good set of policies to build more housing. And yet it remains incredibly tough to build housing in California, despite apparently all the people in powerful offices having the same diagnosis of the problem. So why is it quite so hard? I mean, it just seems that there's such a consensus here politically in California and that the ability to do anything, you know, to make the most of that consensus just seems really limited. What is going on?
2: So there are a couple of things happening. First is that that consensus is relatively new. And part of that is down to the California dream that Mayor Garcetti mentioned earlier. You know, when people moved to California, they wanted to have a single-family home. And so the legacy of that is these weird single-family home neighborhoods in the middle of Los Angeles rather than, you know, a bunch of dense apartment buildings. And so changing that a lot of people think, is not just changing what the city looks like, but also kind of the ethos of Los Angeles. Secondly, a lot of building and zoning decisions are down to local government. And a lot of those local governments don't want to build. But the state is starting to kind of put pressure on those governments and even go as far as suing them to force them to build more housing in order to try to bring down housing prices and to alleviate homelessness. Aaron,
1: I want to ask you, how liberal is California really? Because we find it really easy to caricature the state in part because of the politicians who represent California nationally, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, for instance. But tell me about what the state's
2: politics actually are. I had this exact same question. So I went back and I looked at the way that California voted in the Democratic primary for president in 2020. And the state voted for Bernie Sanders. So then I kind of drilled down and I looked at L.A. and San Francisco, also, which voted for Bernie Sanders. And not just that, but if you look at the combination of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they beat Joe Biden basically two to one in that primary. So that should give you kind of an indication of just how liberal the state is now. L.A. and San Francisco are much more liberal than the rest of the state, I should say that. There are still Republican parts of California. They do exist. And there are purple parts of California, too. You know, the Central Valley is very agricultural. It's very different than San Francisco and the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose you could argue that because the California primary is late in the cycle— the deal is pretty much done by the time California gets to vote, Oh, it certainly was when Joe Biden was running in 2020. And so you could say that those votes from L.A. and San Francisco were kind of a protest vote. OK, we'll find out more about the candidates vying to solve L.A.'s seemingly intractable problems in just a minute. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed over the past week from our coverage?
1: Our colleague Andrew Palmer wrote a great column last week about why we shouldn't bring our whole selves to work, why that's a deep error. So I thought it was very funny and uh, advice that should be taken to heart.
0: Do you bring your whole self to the pod?
1: (laughs) I bring three quarters of myself to the pod. What's your answer?
0: I do bring my whole self to the pod. This is all I got. There's no secret (laughs) extra bit that I leave at home. And how about you, Erin?
2: We are publishing a series of summer reads, which is basically one of our correspondents or editors picking like five to seven books on a topic that they're an expert in. And John Fasman, sometimes of this parish, has written one about cookbooks that is great, even if, like me, you don't know how to cook at all.
0: I found it incredibly intimidating, that piece that John wrote. I mean, he is such a good cook. Both Charlotte and I have been cooked for by Fasman. And I don't think I could attempt any of the recipes in the books that he recommends. Nevertheless, I really enjoyed his, his enthusiasm for the seven books he recommended. Economist.com slash is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
4: A step
2: back.
1: Here maybe,
4: and I step back a little bit.:
2: Watch out. It was clear as soon as I started knocking on doors with Iretha that she was a real pro, a longtime resident of South LA. She's been canvassing for different political campaigns for 15 years.
3: How are you doing today, madam
1: I'm, I'm great. My name is Iretha. I'm with the Karen Bass campaign. We're
4: uh, out here canvassing for Ms Bass.
2: I joined Aretha in Baldwin Hills, a mostly African-American neighborhood, where she's been drumming up support for Congresswoman Karen Bass. Bass will face off against Rick Caruso in a November runoff to become the next mayor of LA. Bass has represented parts of Los Angeles in the House of Representatives since 2011, so it was a surprise to a lot of people when she declared she would leave Congress to run for mayor. She told me why she felt she had to run.
4: Last year, this time, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, Loved my work, especially my foreign policy work. But I decided not to run again because of what is happening in Los Angeles. We have an absolute crisis in L.A. We have more than 50,000 people unhoused. It's also the crisis of the uptick in crime and the convergence of both of those issues, which could move L.A. in a conservative direction. And I don't think that's the answer for the city, and I don't want to see that happen.
2: And her instincts turned out to be right. Her opponent, Rick Caruso, was a Republican for a lot of his life and only registered as a Democrat in January, right before launching his campaign. But support for him has surged.
5: I tell you what I love about L.A. It's our people, our communities, the feeling that in this city anything is possible.
2: The real estate developer has poured more than $37 million of his own money into the campaign so far, outspending Bass almost 10 to 1.
3: Because it's not the power of the dollar, it's the power
4: of the
5: people. This
4: is a city of hope.
2: And his list of endorsements from L.A. celebrities just keeps growing. There's Snoop Dogg. I
5: endorse the real, and that is real.
2: Kim Kardashian. I really believe in what he stands for, and I was super inspired by him and i really believe in him and gwyneth paltrow i
1: think we really need a leader who can come in and has the strength to solve some really tough problems so that is why i am endorsing my old friend rick caruso for mayor
2: rick caruso i caught up with caruso at an event in koreatown after a lot of speeches asian american business leaders got to ask the candidate questions Homelessness came up immediately and is the issue that the campaign has revolved around. How are you going to solve this
5: uh, homeless problem? I know I feel sorry for them. Some, some,
2: some of them is a mentally ill person, some of them on drugs, some of them maybe not capable enough to do their job. This is one of the worst problems for the last 10 years. It's yeah. getting worse and worse.
5: I want to solve this. You're, you're you're absolutely right. The problem continues to get worse. It's a complicated problem, but I believe I have a plan to fix the problem. And so,
2: Caruso and Bass, Bass both, both say they'll declare a local state of emergency to free up resources to tackle homelessness as soon as they win. But their message on the problem is very different. Bass emphasizes her reputation as a collaborator and a problem solver who can work with other politicians to get housing built quickly. Caruso, on the other hand, wants to centralize power in the mayor's office. He says he'll clean up encampments and stop the city council from micromanaging housing decisions. Businesses.
5: So I'm confident I can do it. State of emergency, we'll build the beds we need, and then we start building the housing that we need to give them permanent housing.
2: For Caruso, homelessness is not just a humanitarian crisis. It's a question of what makes good business sense.
5: The city has to be presentable. It has to be safe. You know, I'll give you an example, and I talk to Ted Sarantos all the time, you know, the co-CEO of Netflix. You know, he made a commitment to have his headquarters in Los Angeles. If you go around his headquarters now, the amount of encampments that are there, the raw sewage on the street that is there, the human waste, right? We've got an obligation not only to the poor souls that are living on the street, but we've got an obligation to these businesses. To provide an environment where people want to go to the office and work, and where offices want to be headquartered here. We've lost so many headquarters. It's terrible.
2: To Caruso's detractors, billionaire is a dirty word. But to his supporters, like the local businessmen in Koreatown, his personal success is the best advertisement for his political leadership.
0: He wants to overhaul the city, Paul, and he's going to do that as a successful businessman. The city has to run like a business, you know, no more business as your politics
2: Karen Bass is pushing back against the idea that a single businessman, however successful, can provide the answers to L.A.'s problems. But Caruso's message has proved compelling. Both of them will go on to a runoff in November. So the real campaign is just beginning.
0: So Erin, Rick Caruso is a former Republican, billionaire, property developer. Some Democratic activists hearing that CV will say, aha, here, here comes another Trump-like figure. But Caruso's policy platform, as far as I can dictate, though different from Karen Bass's when it comes to the homelessness issue and how you should deal with homelessness, doesn't seem particularly right-wing on other points.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. There is this temptation to compare him to Donald Trump because... They're both billionaire property developers. But I think Rick Caruso is kind of a tried-and-true California Republican, and that's very different from what it means to be a Republican elsewhere. For example, I have talked to him about climate change and how urgent he thinks addressing that is. Even though he has donated to the likes of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, he says that he is pro-choice when we would talk about abortion, for example. That being said... There are stark differences between what he and Karen Bass would do if, if either of them were to win the election. For example, if you think about policing, Rick Caruso would like to add 1,500 officers to the LAPD. He says that he would like to devote those officers to community policing, um, but Karen Bass, on the other hand, would only like to add about 300, and that's only because the LAPD is short-staffed by 300 people. So it's a very different approach to tackling this rise on violent crime.
0: I also wonder if there's something thermostatic going on in the sense that if Donald Trump were still in the White House, I think Karen Bass would be soaring in this election. And I don't think Caruso would have much of a chance. The fact that Joe Biden is in the White House, I think, somehow changes the environment for Democrats. And we'll see that in the midterms in November when I think they'll lose the majority in the House and probably lose the majority in the Senate as well. And I wonder if that's going on here as well. And that counts against Karen Bass.
2: I think it is, and I actually think that's one of the reasons why we saw the recall of Tessa Boudin in San Francisco. He was elected when Trump was in office and there was this groundswell of support for progressivism. And now that you don't have the distraction of Donald Trump and fighting the culture war with the White House, that becomes much less urgent.
1: It's always easier to run when you don't have a record. I was struck with the case in San Francisco that Boudin didn't have anyone to run against when he was recalled. People basically just said, no, we don't want this. They didn't have anyone's policies to compare him to. It's not really clear what the answer is. So if if not Boudin specifically, you know, who's the person who's going to do the job in the way that San Franciscans really want?
0: I agree with that, Charlotte. However, there's more to Boudin's loss, isn't there, than yeah, him for not sure. having an opponent. I mean, I was really struck looking at the numbers, looking at the results of this election the recall election in San Francisco, quite how poorly in particular he did with Asian Americans. I'm very sympathetic to criminal justice reform, as longtime listeners to the podcast will know. But I think the way that Boudin went about that was hopeless politically.
1: And practically, right? I mean, hopeless in every sense.
0: Both politically and practically. I mean, the minute you give people the attention that you've taken your eye off public safety – as somebody who occupies that office, you've killed any space there might be for criminal justice reform.
1: Absolutely, I agree with that. And I think that there's a real false choice, right, between either having Chesapeake Boudin-style prosecution and having the status quo of the Minneapolis Police Department prior to George Floyd's death. I mean, you can take steps to reduce recidivism and, and reduce the size of prison populations. You can ban a chokehold. You can end qualified immunity, i.e. make it harder to punish police for wrongdoing. That's very different than not prosecuting basic crimes.
0: I think the environment is going to become quite a lot harder for progressive prosecutors around the country, but that's not necessarily fair. I mean, our graphic detail team took a look at whether there's a correlation between the election of progressive prosecutors and the homicide rate in America a couple of months ago. I can tweet that link and found that there was no correlation at all. I think the San Francisco case is another story but let's leave that there for now. We'll be back in a moment to talk about what lessons the Democrats nationally should be taking from what's happening in California politics. — Erin, looking at the Boudin recall, the success of Rick Caruso in polls, the recall effort for the DA in Los Angeles, a lot of people, and I have to say I'm falling into this tendency a bit, are saying this shows that the left wing of the Democratic Party is overreaching and there's going to be a course correction nationally with the party. Do you think that's right or are things a bit more complicated than that?
2: Yeah, to get the view of kind of how this might affect the Democratic Party nationally, I talked to Fernando Guerra, and he's a professor of political science and Latino studies. And he founded the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. And I found him one of the most helpful people to wrapping my head around L.A. politics. So I had a chat with him about these results. And he actually argued that a lot of the pundits have it wrong.
4: While there's been this narrative about moving a little bit to the right, Democrats have gone too far, they need to pull back, nothing could be further from the truth in Los Angeles. It was the opposite. The moderate Democrats did not do as well as expected, and the very, very progressive Democrats did much better than expected.
2: Are you talking about the more local races below the mayor's race then on the ballot?
4: That's correct. For city council, for city controller... Um, and, and all of those. Yeah.
2: I mean, what do you think that the message is then coming out of these primaries? Because what we are hearing is we're seeing this lurch to the or not lurch, maybe tilt um, to the right in L.A. with Rick Caruso's success and with the recall in San Francisco. But what you're saying sounds a little bit different.
4: Yeah. I mean, certainly Rick Caruso is unique, uh, but he's an outlier in the following sense. Thirty million dollars. And so, yes, he's, you know, former Republican, much more conservative, but he had the money to dominate the airwaves. And yet he didn't win outright. And right behind him was Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass. And so, my instinct right now is that she's actually the front runner, even though she's four percentage points behind in the primary, because in November, the electorate will be very different. We would expect almost 25% more individuals voting in November, and they will be younger, more Democrat, more progressive, more Latino, more African American. All of that bodes well for her.
2: A lot of the folks in L.A., when I was there reporting, brought up the 90s and kind of how the political circumstances compare. And I, I just wondered if you think that that is a fair comparison to make.
4: I think it is a very fair comparison. I mean this to to some extent what what happened in the 90s we had Uh, incredibly high crime rate, much higher than we do today. We had the riots of 1992. Then we had the first mayoral election immediately after the riots in 93. And we ended up with a Republican after 20 years of Tom Bradley, the first African-American mayor. Then you go back to 1969, the first year that Tom Bradley ran against a very right-wing Uh, white mayor, Sam Yorty, and he lost that race. And that race was the first election immediately after the Watts riots. And so you had an election immediately after a riot in 69, the liberal lost. An election immediately after the riots in 92, the liberal lost. And now you have an election immediately after the 2020 George Floyd protests. And one could say, you know, the pattern would be that the liberal would lose again. But the city is incredibly different. The electorate is very different, and we saw that in the primary, and I think we'll see that in the general election.
2: Does that necessarily benefit Karen Bass?
4: Oh, absolutely. I would say that 75% of the voters are just inclined to support her when things are going well, when the economy is well, when politics is stable. Voters begin to question their values and what the future looks like when there is political disarray and economic stability and increasing social problems in terms of crime. And that's what we have. And so now you have very liberal voters saying, hey, liberal democratic regime that has governed Los Angeles and California for the last 30 years, we love you, but you are not meeting this particular moment. And then Part of the discontent is not just from the right or moderate, but from the progressives. Far left also challenging this liberal democratic regime. And and that's the challenge is how do you uh, respond to both sides and keep this coalition and this regime alive?
2: I guess the thing that I am sort of wondering is if you think about the midterms coming up or even 2024. Does this send any type of signal for the types of candidates that Democrats should be running?
4: Yes. I think that the progressives aren't going to like this, but I think that on the more visible national candidates, you have to run the traditional liberal Democrat, not a moderate Democrat, but a liberal Democrat versus a progressive. And then progressives really should focus, which is what's happening in LA, on some of the lower positions and start building that base. And so that, I think, is part of the strategy. But that assumes that the party is organized and that the progressives are organized and that they're all going to look at the big picture. And that just doesn't happen in American politics. As it was once said and continues to be said, I belong to no organized party. I'm a Democrat.
0: So Aaron knows Fernando complicating the picture, violating the narrative. There we were all thinking that California is a portend of a snapback, uh, a reaction to left-wing overreach that may then spread across the nation. He thinks that that's not the case. One of the things I wanted to pick up on, he said that the electorate is just so different from how it was last time there was a backlash against liberal Democrats being in charge and wrecking everything in California. Can you tell us a bit about the changing electorate in California?
2: Sure. L.A. is now about 49 percent Hispanic, which is a massive change to decades ago. And that does not mean that half of Angelino's voting are Hispanic, but it's a huge chunk of the electorate. And like Dr. Guerra said, that he thinks that that will benefit Karen Bass. I think that there's a question about whether or not we're going to see Latinos move to the right at all, like we have seen in places like Texas and Florida. And I asked Fernando this question— and he thought that California because of its one party politics that was less of a concern when the political divisions are more between progressives and moderate democrats than they are between democrats and republicans.
0: Charlotte, how much do you think we should read across what's happening in California into national politics and how much of a sign is this for the Democratic Party more broadly do you think?
1: Well, I think it's interesting for a few reasons. I think that running as a democrat in the Trump era versus running as a Democrat, without Trump in the White House, that there was a clear optimism that if Trump represented a chaotic presidency in which he had lots of negative policies, and by that I mean kind of articulating clearly what he was against, so trade, immigration, crime, he wasn't that clear about articulating what he was for or how to get there other than America should be great. So if Trump was chaotic and negative, Democrats were supposed to bring some order and be positive and be problem solvers. But I think, what you've seen in the past two years is that that's actually much easier said than done.
0: I think that's right. There's an asymmetry here. I mean, if you're a Republican, one of your core beliefs, I think, is that government is a bit useless at fixing things. If you're a Democrat and you're a liberal, then I think you have to believe that government has the power to make things better. And so if things are not being fixed in city government, state government then that is a real, real problem for Democrats. And I think some of the very visible kind of failures we've been talking about in San Francisco and Los Angeles therefore provide an invitation to voters to try something else.
1: I think just generally, though, I was fascinated when I was looking at some of the polling from Pew because there are just certain types of Democrats who capture the imagination but aren't necessarily representative of a broad swath Of voters. If you ask Democrats on a range of different policies and you kind of ask them to define what they think about, the number of Democrats, the share of Democrats that are really progressive, really far left, are just not that many. If you add up sort of the real lefties within the Democratic Party, it's about 28%. And if you look at what Democrats think about some really big issues, there are policies on which most people in the Democratic Party agree. So raising the minimum wage, the idea that it's okay to have slightly higher taxes, for instance. But on all sorts of other things, there are just massive, massive gaps. If you look at what Democrats think about policing, I mean, there's a gap of of nearly 40 points around defunding the police and disagreement about the degree to which American institutions need to be reformed on a big scale. And I think one thing that we saw certainly in the 2020 election in the platforms of the main candidates, including Joe Biden's platform, is a shift leftward, and I think what you're seeing now is the beginning of a backlash locally, and I think probably a backlash nationally as well to some of the more lefty politics. This is hardly a completely a novel thought, but I was interested in the the polling to back this up that there really is a substantial difference in opinions within the party. And that the furthest to the left are not remotely the majority.
2: I agree, Charlotte. And that is sort of what I came across in my reporting in Los Angeles also. At that Koreatown event I was at, I was talking to a city councilman who had dropped out of the race for mayor and endorsed Rick Caruso. And he told me that his campaign had been inspired by what Eric Adams was doing in New York. And I think that there is this feeling among moderate to conservative Democrats that this is kind of their time if they want to take it.
1: I also just want to strike a note of caution, which is that if you look at how much people nationally care about homelessness, it's like ranks very, very far down right on the list. It's something like 3%. And so it's the care of people who say it's the top issue locally in a place like Los Angeles is 10 times that.
0: I guess picking up on your point about how there just aren't that many progressive liberals in America, I rather hope that the Democratic Party does course correct and does slightly overlearn the lessons from what's going on in California. Because I think if the Democratic Party wants to be in the election winning business nationally, that's where it has to be. Well, Charlotte, you seem to have a lot of data at your fingertips this week. And so you're well placed for the quiz. This is a vice presidential themed quiz. California is, of course, home to the current vice president, Kamala Harris. The Economist first wrote about her in May 2004. We reported on a fundraising concert in a trendy warehouse area of San Francisco. She was at that time the city's district attorney. The event, we noted, had, quote, an impeccably leftish tone. On stage, a local rock star did his stuff and rich white trustafarians drank, nibbled and chatted. Question one. Who was the first Roman Catholic vice president?
1: Hmm. Was Ford Catholic?
0: It's kind of a trick question. I mean, has there never really been a Roman question. Catholic no, vice there, president? There, there has, but but um but it's somebody more recent.
2: Is it Joe Biden?
0: Joe Biden was indeed the first Catholic vice president.
2: Oh well done, Aaron.
0: Question two. Who is the only former vice president to have won a Grammy? Al Gore is the right answer. He won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album in 2009 for the audiobook version of An Inconvenient Truth. Presidents have done rather better in the Grammy stakes. So Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama have all won multiple Grammy Awards for spoken albums. Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama have also won Grammys. Republicans not doing so well in the Grammy stakes, it seems.
2: Well, I feel like I can picture Al Gore performing his spoken word book at like Politics and Prose in D.C.,
1: When you talk about a spoken word album, it sounds like it should be done in a certain cadence, which is not that with which it was actually delivered. I will not demonstrate the cadence that I mean, but you can imagine. Sorry. That's the 25% of myself that stays at home.
0: Well, I feel that we cleared all of that up somewhat. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Erin.
2: Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan with help from Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. The sound engineer was Nico Rofast and research came from Milton Vargas. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a newsletter, Checks and Balance. It's called Such a Good Name. Erin wrote it this week and it draws on her reporting from California. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane, we'll have more Checks and Balance next week.